You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Karen White, a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 31, that's 3-1, books including the Trad Street series, Last Night in London, and Dreams of Falling. Her latest book is the first in a spinoff series set in New Orleans. The Shop on Royal Street will be available wherever books are sold on Tuesday, March 29th. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Karen. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. And I always, I always ask the first, my first question of everybody is, uh, is always general, but it is, um, where does your story begin? And particularly your story as an author begin. Where does that story begin, Karen? Um, as an avid reader, um, and I was late coming to reading. Um, I uh, was not um, really, I did not become a reader until I was nine years old, third grade. Um my mother was not a reader. She read her ladies home journal and my, my dad was a voracious reader, but always like, you know, Winston Churchill's memoirs and um, except for true ghost stories. My dad would read those out aloud to us, which meant that I really didn't sleep alone until I went to college. <laughs> um, but, which, you know, which also informs my later writing career. But um, when I was um, in third grade, my father was with Exxon. So we lived in all sorts of different locations and we were in Venezuela and we sort of lived in this encampment. And, you know, we had this club area where, where we did everything, our school, everything was there. And there was a tiny little library. And I was just getting in from the heat into the air conditioning with a friend of mine who was returning school books or library books. And I was just standing there just waiting for her to be done so we could go swimming. And the librarian walked over to me and said, Karen, why do you read? And I said, I don't. And that, I mean, she turned completely gray. <laughs> um, and she just immediately turned towards the shelves and pulled out a book. And it was The, the Secret in the Old Clock, Nancy Drew. And that was all it took. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. So were you turning to reading as an escape from, from, Oh yeah. I was raised with three brothers. Of course I was turning to reading as an escape, you know, um, they weren't readers. They tortured me. And like I said, you know, in Venezuela, there were some really big, um, insects and reptiles and they loved, you know, putting them down my back, putting them in my bed, putting them in my shoes, putting them over, you know, um, on my bike seat, putting them over the doors. Of course I hid from them with a book because otherwise, (laughs) You know, it was a scary childhood. Well, I mean, that combined with the ghost stories, I'm sure. Yeah, that, I mean, of course, I needed to escape from my little world. So, yeah. What was up with the ghost stories? What was your father's fascination? You said they're true ghost stories? Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, my my dad comes from a long line of Southerners, um, you know, from early 1800s, late 1700s. 
they've been in the South and, you know, Southerners there, you know, they, they don't like to leave, let their family members really depart. <laughs> um, and I guess he grew up, cause I remember as a child, my, his mother, my grandmother telling me, yes, I was hanging clothes on the line in the backyard. And my you know mother was talking to me and, you know, I just thought that was normal that, that people would talk to people. Luckily they didn't speak to me because I'm a scaredy cat. I, you know, um, but my dad, I think that also, I mean, he was born in a log cabin, literally no facilities or whatever. It was 1932 in, in Macomb, Mississippi. If you can imagine it's the mm-hmm. depression, very, very hard times. And so, you know, talking was all they had for entertainment, you know, and they lived with lots of relatives around them. And so everybody's always talking about the relatives. It was the storytelling. And my dad said there were that how that cabin, you know, had been in their family. I don't know for how long. Um, I mean, there's pictures of my great, great, great parents in front of this cabin. So there's a lot of history there. And he said he had a dog that there was one room that dog would just bear its fangs and just never go into. And there was a rocking chair that was in it, you know, that had belonged to his grandmother that would occasionally be rocking. So, um, you know, these are the stories that as a child, they don't leave you. Um, you they know, don't leave you, but they, they kind of simulate the imagination, don't they? Oh, I mean, it's, it's like that, that, that what if gene that lives inside, you know, most authors. I mean, that, that it's like fertilizer for that. Absolutely. And even, you know, I, even though I could not sleep by myself for many years, I'm so grateful for those, those germs and, you know, of, of a story and the watering, you know, that my father's stories sort of gave those seeds. So, mm-hmm. yeah. If you had to fast forward a little bit, and I do want to spend a little bit more time talking about your childhood, but I'm curious, like, how did those experiences with your dad and, and his sort of true ghost stories, how did that impact your later writing? Oh, that and also his fascination with history, because I I think part of his fascination with ghosts was history, not just his personal history of his family, but our collective history. I mean, also, you know, he was a huge fan of Winston Churchill, as I am. He read every memoir, every speech, every, and he passed that on to to me. Um, And growing up, you know, all over the world, and also we were in New Jersey, we've been to every single battlefield for every battle within, you know, we... Every um, when he worked in New York City, we would drive from where we lived in New Jersey down to Mississippi and Florida to visit family. And we'd stop at every battlefield along the way, you know, detouring just to go over the history and everything, because ghosts are history. There are people who lived before us, who who their stories were told in the past. um, And ghosts are really just sort of interjections. Is that a word, you know, into Mm -hmm. into our present and. Um, so I think that is all combined. And so, of course, my love for history and storytelling and family connections and family history and ghosts, of course, that all that all comes into my my future storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I just I interviewed somebody a few weeks ago who um, was telling me she lived in a haunted house mm, so while jealous. she was while she was writing her latest book, uh, which happened to deal with an exorcism. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's a little scarier than just your regular run of the mill ghost. Yeah, a little, little scoopy, you know, a little, yeah. little, little, you know, spookier, you know, we're not talking Patrick Swayze here. Right. Um, right. <laughs> more like Linda Blair. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so when did you start writing? I mean, so you, you got to the reading game, you know, you say late, no third grade or so, um, kind of started with Nancy Drew, but when did you start thinking, Hey, I, I might want to contribute something as, as a writer. 
never, I never planned to be a writer. It was not, it was just not something that I thought I could do. Um, uh, but I loved stories. I loved reading them. I loved thinking about them in my head. I remember my teachers all through elementary, middle and high school, um, and even in college, you know, cause you had to take, I was a business major, but I had to take, you know, the creative writing classes and they were always saying, you should be a writer. You, you're very creative. And I'd be like, Ugh. but I know where that came from. It's, you know, back in the day and not to date myself, but you know, when I had to write a, an assignment, either an in-class assignment, a story or whatever, it was all longhand. Mm-hmm. And when you are a storyteller, your stories in your head are just, you know, 10 times faster than you could write them down. And so I found writing very frustrating. You know, I, I would get like an A plus in, in content and a D or F in handwriting because I'd be, you know, because I'd be trying to write that first sentence and my head would be on, you know, the third chapter. And I just, you know, so I then I became the kid that would write really, really big so that if it was a five page assignment, I just run out of space, you know, and my teacher's like, well, how does it end? I'm like, well, I ran out of paper. So I, you know, can't tell you the rest of the story because it was, I just found writing the most frustrating thing. Then in 10th grade, we had to learn typing and we learned typing on manual typewriters. And that is the true, <laughs> the true tell of a, a true, you know, a true typist. So now I've played piano all my life. So I had really good hand-eye coordination. So I picked up typing very, very quickly on a manual. Within a week, I was typing 88 words a minute without mistake. So mm-hmm. there you go. Um, and that's when it kind of clicked. But I had already told myself that there is no way I ever wanted to be a writer. I was just content to think of stories like I'd be watching movies and I'd always come up with my own endings or I read a book and if I didn't like the ending I would just kind of think of it I would never write it down though because you know that's just not something I do I didn't keep a journal I didn't keep a diary um, remember, I have three brothers as well. And when my older brothers and I went to the same high school, and that would have been social suicide. And there was no way that I was going to do that. I did keep a journal where I recorded what I wore to school each day. But that is all the personal writing I ever did. I, I mean, if you looked at my report cards, and my mother has given them to me after they moved um, yes. away, she gave yes. me a box of my old report cards, straight used, which stood for unsatisfactory in handwriting. <laughs> Straight, straight through. Same. Same. And I, I mean, to this day, I have to type because I can't write notes longhand because I won't be able to read them. I I will not be able to read them. Yeah. And I apologize to people whose books I've signed, especially if they, they ask for more than just a signature. I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is how, this is my handwriting. I actually had a woman ask me after I signed my name, she looked at it and she said, is this really your signature? I'm no, I'm faking it on your, but yes, that is really my signature. And I apologize. So, I mean, you've, you've got 31 books out. Um, so eventually you, you made the, the, the pivot to becoming, you know, an author, but what were you studying in business school? Like what was you, when you were in college, um, finally sleeping alone, um, you know, and I, I can't no, say the same. my roommate's relief. Yeah. Like get out of here. <laughs> um, I was going to say you started sleeping alone in college. I started the other, but, um, <laughs> what I'm curious about is, uh, <laughs> my dad's going to hear this and be like, yeah, what did I pay boy, for? I'll be like, what? Yeah. Um, but what I'm curious about is like, what were you studying? What were you hoping to be when you were in college? If, if not an author, if not a writer, if not doing something creative, what was the plan? 
working in an office. I know that sounds so lame and stupid, but I had no idea. But I figured business and my father who paid for my education figured business was a good way to start, you know? So there were, you know, and and I thought, and I was, I was exposed to so many really cool ideas of things I could do in the business world um, that didn't involve finance and accounting, which sadly I also had to take when I was in college. Um, And I actually managed to pass them even. But, um, you know, so then I started looking at advertising or marketing because those were more creative fields for me. And that's kind of what I was thinking about, Um, because really writing never occurred to me until um, after I had gotten married and I was expecting. No, I had had, you know, oh, and then I, um, I had two children. Boom, boom. And then I was like, okay, this is great. I don't want to work outside the home, but my kids are really good sleepers. And I just read this great book called Outlander by Dinah Gabaldon. And then I read the other three in the series. And when my kids were very little, I mean, I think my son has a dent in his head for me, you know, nursing, <laughs> propping the book up at the same time. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I, he doesn't have a dent, but the other two things are correct. And um, <laughs> And I could not read another book after I put those books away. I couldn't. So I read them again and again. And I, I had the biggest book hangover. And that's when I heard the ghost of my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Anderson, telling me, you should be a writer. And I was like, stay at home, mom. You know, I, my kids are on a good sleeping schedule. I have this time in the day that I'm right now reading. But what if I just, since I can't read, why don't I just like sit down and just write my own book? And I, I did, that's what I did. I mm-hmm. actually did. And that's the first book. Um, I ended up writing, um, sending it into a writing contest because Diana Gabaldon would give you a written critique if you got to a certain level. So not only did I get to the level where I got a critique from her and she was fabulous, but I also ended up winning the contest. And that's how I got my first literary agent. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so that's that that was your path to, to getting published. You, right. You, and I thought it was a fluke. And I thought the second contract was a fluke. It wasn't until my 12th book when I hit the New York Times that I thought, maybe this isn't a fluke. Maybe I'm supposed to be a writer. I mean, I, you know, maybe because I'm a middle child and like nobody ever expected anything out of me. So I just kind of I love surprising people, including myself. Well, your sixth grade teacher was was certainly onto something. I know. Um, I know. And then I'm curious, but you said the ghost of your sixth grade teacher. I mean, are, are well, we talking guess, like metaphorically know, here or metaphorically? Okay. I mean, I can, I can still hear her in my head, you know, saying, Karen, you should be a writer. <laughs> well, you know, I think the, there, there, there are those teachers um, and they certainly don't get enough credit um, for, for all and that, I, you know, we yes. become, yes. Um, but it's, it's, it's that usually that one voice. And I hear this over and over again of encouragement of somebody who, who's not related to you that says exactly. you, know, you could do something like X, Y, and Z, or I spot something in you. And it's like, that's that, that first, you know, acknowledgement is so critical. Right. Oh, absolutely. That you are not this crazy person who thinks that you can do this thing. And, or for me, who's not this crazy person who just doesn't want to be a writer, regardless of, of you know, what your teacher sees as your talent, you know? Um, I'm also very stubborn. If I say I don't want to be a writer, I mean, I don't want to be a writer, you know? And it took me years to get over that. So I'm curious, what, what were you doing in business? Like after you graduate, what was, what was the first job? 
So I did work for an advertising company. Actually, I worked retail. Um, I was in a retail management program. I wanted to be a buyer for this major, gorgeous department store in Washington, D.C. It was a chain called Garfinkel. Lovely, lovely, lovely. They went bankrupt about the same time I got married. So that kind of worked out. And then I worked in an advertising company. And um, and then um, uh, right before my daughter was born, or for three years, um, I worked. I was an operations manager for a um, software design company. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So which was me because operations manager, it's pretty much what you are as a writer. You know, the, the writing part these days is this big and then everything else is like this, you know, and and so I'm really good at managing. I mean, if you could see my desk right now, you'd scream. But because um, it is there's like so many different pieces, parts to the whole writing business. And um, so that that job really prepared me for everything. And business school, I learned all about marketing. You know, I learned about how to do a spreadsheet, although back then it was Lotus one, two, three, but now mm-hmm. I can do PowerPoint. You know, it, it taught me not to be afraid of computers. And um, yeah, so it's it's all good. Everything has led me to this point. Yeah, no, my, my first job out of school was in advertising, which okay. I never, I never planned to go into the business world. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. And of course, I well, was it's kind of the a, same thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to do a PhD program. Somebody said, yeah, take a year off, get a job, you know, experience what life is like, you know, outside mm-hmm. of school. So I did never went back from the PhD, but that's how I got into um, the market research business and running focus groups and interviewing people for a living. And then that spun into writing and all that good stuff. But yeah. what were you, were, were you with a big agency or? I wasn't, it was, um, it was a small agency in Princeton, New Jersey, Ellen Tuck and Springer. I do not believe they're still in business. And, you know, it was the, um, what are they called? The, um, oh, I can't even think of the, the name. It's the, uh, you remember back in the old days when it's, you know, 1-800 call and those, so, you know, like TV guide was one of our customers yeah. and you know what I'm saying? I, yeah. there's, um, direct response, uh, marketing, direct yes, response. Thank you. Direct, direct yep. response. Thank you. Well. Yes. That, that was it. And we, you know, the agency was a one stop. It did everything, you know, from, you know, the client interface to the, the, you know, filming the commercials. And then I was on the business end, you know, analyzing all the end of it and sending out, I mean, I remember putting tapes and, you know, the tapes into the packages and shipping them out and all that to the different stations around the, oh the yeah. Yeah. The yeah. old, the old traffic department that no longer exists anymore. Exactly. I, I was, again, op, you know, I, I was on kind of an operation. Well, I was um, a buyer's assistant and mm-hmm. also in operations. So, you know, it's a small agency. You, you do what you needed to do, but I loved it. I loved, I loved, loved, loved that job. So and they also have... went out of business. Maybe it's me. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I, I don't think so because your publisher apparently is still in business. Right? I, yeah. <laughs> I maybe um, they death, but not yet. So you took you took you to the twelfth book to to have the light go on and say you know what maybe this is who I am maybe maybe I I can sort of identify as as an author. Um, right. Tell I, me, I, I just tell me. I, I needed that validation, I guess, mm-hmm. which is dumb. I don't you know I don't want my children to be hearing this because you shouldn't be looking for outside outsiders to validate what you do. But, you know, writing is so subjective. And I'm like, what if I'm the only person who, and my editor, what if we're the only two people who enjoy what I'm writing, you know? Um, And then when you hit the New York Times list and um, just by word of mouth and people saying, I love this book, buy this book, read this book, it's it's really kind of cool. It's like, oh, okay. So other people like what I'm writing too. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think validation is, is just as important as that sixth grade teachers, you know, voice in your head saying right. you should do this. You could do this right. um, because imposter syndrome, it's, it's a real thing. It is a real um, thing. I hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you look up the, the definition of imposter of, of imposter syndrome in the dictionary, my picture is going to be etched right next to it. You know, yeah. Just, and I'm, and I'm next to your picture. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, we're in, we're in good company. So tell me about this, uh, this new series. It's a, it's a spinoff series set, uh, set in new Orleans. Um, tell me a little bit uh, about, uh, about the first book in the series. Sure. So the first book is A Shop on Royal Street that comes out the 29th of March, which when we're we're recording today on the 28th, so tomorrow, yay. Um, And so it is a spinoff of my, and I want to, I'm going to say beloved because everybody, everybody that I hear from says they love the series. So that means it's beloved, right? Um, and uh, those books consistently hit the New York Times, which which is very gratifying. Uh, so the Trad Street series uh, was set in Charleston, and it was you know so there's seven books. And when I got to writing the sixth book, I knew that the seventh book would be it. I needed to. It was time to end the series, but I wasn't ready to say goodbye to those characters or sort of they're different from my single titles there is the paranormal aspect the main character in the trad street series is melanie and she um is an ocd realtor who can communicate with the dead um and doesn't like to so she sings abba really loudly when when they bother her so they're a lot lighter than my single title books um even though they do deal with the same themes in my other books which is family family connections um, family stories, old houses, um, the things that I love. And um, so for the, for when I knew that I wanted to end the series, I knew I wanted to do a spinoff series and the most logical candidate of secondary characters in the first series uh, was Nola Trenum, who is the stepdaughter of Melanie. And she's in, in the spinoff. So it's about almost 10 years after we last see her in the last book in the Trad Street series. And she's a young woman of 26, and she has had some stumbles in her growing up years because when we leave her, she's just looking to go to college at Tulane in New Orleans. Mm. And um, so we meet her. She's 26. So she's passed her undergraduate and graduate work. Um, and she's working in New Orleans as an architectural historian, which, by the way, it, my, is my daughter's job. They have the same degree in historic preservation from the College of Charleston. Imagine and, that. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that free research, anyone. (laughs) Um, But she's had some stumbles and she's deliberately chosen New Orleans because she had some vices that obviously New Orleans would not be the place of choice for someone trying to avoid certain vices. And um, but that's her. She's very stubborn. She's very strong. And, you know, um, if you haven't read the series, you find out in the new series. And that's the, the one thing I need to make clear. You do not have to have read the Trad Street series to be able to jump into the, the shop on Royal Street to understand who Nola is, where she comes from, who her family is, that sort of thing. But she had a very rough upbringing for the first 14 years. Um, and she did not make it into Melanie's uh, family or, or life until she was 14. So there was those first 14 years were very formative. And we really don't understand the effect of those 14 years until we get into Nola's character in this new series, which I was so in love with because I knew that Nola had a story that needed to come out and this is my chance to, to do it. So um, she is a historical, arc, um, uh, excuse me, 
architectural historian for a civil engineering firm, like my daughter, and she is moving to New Orleans and she wants to start off by buying her own house and she can restore a house, right? She's got a degree. So she buys this completely dilapidated Creole cottage in the Marigny neighborhood of New Orleans. Um, and we run into some people that um, Bo Ryan, who she met in Charleston and is not really fond of, um, who now lives in New Orleans. Um, and who may or may not have the sixth sense because, of course, um, Nola does not. And then we meet her old roommate from Tulane, Jolene, who is from Mississippi and is my my favorite character next to Nola. Um, <laughs> but we also understand that when she tries to buy this house, Bo doesn't want her to buy it. And then we find out why. Mm. And then we also realize that there are two previous residents of the house um, now deceased who are unwilling to leave. So we get that paranormal thing in it that we had in the first series that people enjoyed, but we also have the family connections and the, and the personal relationships of the, of the leading characters. So yeah. a lot of humor put in, there will be a dog. I'm even adding a cat. Um, so yeah, the, the, and these are my fun stories to tell. And it's in the city of New Orleans, which I is near and dear to my heart as a Tulane graduate. I've never had a beignet, but I'm dying to have one from. Oh my gosh! Just don't wear don't wear dark colors because <laughs> someone will blow powdered sugar all over you, and you will be dusted with it. So, so you know, we were talking about you know the the Trad Street series with the the realtor um, who's a medium, no, and I and who sings ABBA songs out loud. You said ABBA, right? Mm -hmm. So that took me to when my kids were younger. Um, I, I have triplets. They're twenty. They're about to turn twenty, which oh, is. Wow. I mean, it's freaking me. I mean, they're turning 20 in like two weeks. Um, my, but when they were... my daughter turns 30 on Wednesday. Oh, geez. I'm like freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> but like when they were younger, we would always listen to ABBA because I refused to do Raffi. And yeah. Amen. I, well, I will admit to being a big fan of the Wiggles, um, which you, you may have missed that because I think I that was, Thankfully. you may have missed the, the Jeff Murray, Greg and the Anthony. But um, I can give you their colors too. if you know. But, uh, <laughs> but thanks. Yeah. But but so um, we watched um, Mamma Mia, the Mamma Mia movies, um, you know, a couple of years ago, and I found myself like tearing up. I mean, these are kind of funny, lighthearted movies, but yeah. I found myself tearing up just for hearing all these ABBA songs because thinking about these three little babies in the back of you know the minivan, you know, yeah. singing along to like Dancing Queen and Fernando and <laughs> all these great songs. Well, oh man. And let me tell you now, so my kids, I wouldn't, you know, I, they were like, we want to listen to our music, you know, like their whole lives. I'm like, no, I'm the captain of the ship. And because uh, I did carpool with six kids for the longest time, you know, my two and then four others said, no, no, I'm the captain of the ship and we will listen to my music. And my music was 80s music. But can I tell you, my children thank me now because when they were in college and even now, you know, po postgraduate, um, when there is a uh, bar trivia, you mm -hmm. know, where there is going to be music trivia. They are always selected to come on the team because they know every 80s song. Yeah, they're going to pick out Dexy's Midnight Runners. Yes, come on, Eileen. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> they know them all and, and they can name them from the first two bars. So you're yeah. welcome, kids. You're welcome. Damn right. Damn right. Damn right. Um, so along those lines, let's let's have a let's let's ask a couple of fun questions here. Um, when you were younger, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Oh, Dallas, come on. <laughs> I'm so glad you said Dallas. 
<laughs> I'm so glad you said Dallas because it was one of those shows that was on, what was that on like 11 o'clock maybe? It was late. It was on late. I, I was living in London at the time. So you have to remember, like I didn't watch kid uh, kid television because we were in Venezuela and there was literally no television. Yeah. Um, and then when we lived in London, we didn't get a lot of the American shows. Like I never saw um, Hill Street Blues or Saturday Night Live. None of that stuff until I went to college. Um, so the shows that made it over there, Dallas, Dynasty. Oh my gosh, Dynasty. And then, um, um, oh, Starsky and Hutch, because my little brother loved the cars, you know, the, the car. Oh, yeah. Oh, was, gosh. Like, you know, That's what it was all uh, about it was the car with yeah. the Nike swoosh on the side. Yes. Yes. Uh, Charlie's Angel, the Rockford Files. And you know, what all those um, have in common are fantastic theme songs. Oh, um, absolutely. And um, when I went to college, my roommate and I on Friday nights when uh, the show was on, because we didn't always have dates, <clears throat> um, we would do our face masks and we would watch. We said, let's go watch Don, meaning Don Johnson in Miami Vice. I love the themes. They all had great theme songs. Yeah. Where did the great theme songs go after Friends? They're gone. No, They're no gone. theme songs. No. They don't have it. It's all cold opens and like nothing anymore. But yeah. oh, Miami Vice. I know. Uh, Crockett and Tubbs, right? Yes. Crockett and Tubbs. Crockett and Tubbs. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, I had white pants and, and mirrored shades and I yeah. refused to wear socks for a period of time. Yeah, it was a thing. Yeah. No, but I like Dallas was one of those shows. Where I wasn't allowed. I was too young to watch it and really understand the themes. Right. But I my parents used to let us watch the opening to it. Okay. Um, right. So we, we got to hear the theme song and then it was lights out. Go I watched it. I rewatched it. I don't know, maybe about 15 years ago. We started okay. rewatching it and uh, holds up. It holds up. Because I'm always afraid. Like there's so many of my favorite books that I read in high school um, that, you know, I've tried to reread. I'm like, you know, oh, this is so 80s. Like, no, you know. Um, but- I mean, it is it is very 80s, you know. It is and 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 you know, I always thought like when I was a kid, I'm like, J.R. Hewing, he must be the good guy. And he oh, was yeah. like such oh, a yeah. good scoundrel. Guy, right. Right. Such a scoundrel. Right. But see, it's so sad that nowadays, like in my books, if I want to, you know, make a joke about, you know, remember how it was a it was a meme before memes were memes, you know, mm-hmm. who shot JR, oh, you know, yeah. and, you know and, and, and now kids today don't even know what that means. And that like, that cuts me deep, you know, cause that was like huge part of my childhood or my, you know, young adulthood, I guess. Um, so yeah. I, um, I totally ripped off. Uh, well, I, I, I won't say ripped off. I was inspired by who shot Jr. And I borrowed it with pride. <laughs> we um, all did. <laughs> because I had a, uh, the first thing I ever wrote um, was uh, it was a spinoff of an 80s soap opera. Okay. Um, and so I had so much fun with, with the nostalgia and I had, you know, who stabbed Kyle Dixon was, was the whole thing. Um, and what happened to that actor after his career, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. Um, but I thought that was, that was the biggest thing who shot Jr. that and the opening of Al Capone's vault, like those two things. Right. Absolutely. I remember. And, and both like, of them were like, boom, boom, like, right. So non-issues. So non-issues, you know, and and then Bobby, you know, Bobby, it, it was all a dream. Pamela. It was all a dream. Oh, that was a shark jumping moment like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> it's like, know, right? That's lazy writing right there is what that Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I could never get away with that. Oh, my no. gosh. But no. yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So those are some TV shows. I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to know the answer to the next, this next question, but let's, let's imagine it's, it's back in the eighties. Um, you're listening to whatever you're listening to on your Walkman, right? Mm-hmm. What are some of the cassette tapes we'd find? Oh my gosh. Wang Chung. <laughs> Loved him. Everybody have fun tonight. Yes. Tears for fears. Mm. Love tears for fears. They're touring this summer. I know. I know. They're so old. I know, but they still sound great. I know, I know. Um, So I didn't come to Tom Petty until like uh, my like middle 20s, I guess, but Mm -hmm. huge Tom Petty fan. Um, Who else? I mean, every, of course, ABBA. um, Oh, um, Haircut 100. Do you remember Haircut 100? Oh, I do not remember Haircut 100. I'm learning something right now. mm -hmm. Love Plus One is, uh, when you hear the song, because you remember, I lived in London, so I got the new age stuff a a lot more and a lot earlier than in the States. Yeah, by the time it got to us, it was old age. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, But like, I, everybody thought I was cool in college because I'd be like, you know, a, a new song would come on the radio and I, I, just, I know all the words already because, you know, I, I knew it already. Um, and also Depeche Mode, Modern English. Um, oh, David Bowie, God rest his soul. Oh, I know. I mean, yeah, all of that. He, he's he's a guy who could just reinvent himself with like oh every album. No, absolutely. And he was so gifted. Um, I, you know, I listen to his stuff all the time, you know, now, now that you can stream everything on your, you know, I just listen to everything. Um, but yeah, he is incredible. So yeah, just a little bit of everything. And like I said, even some Bee Gees. I mean, I love the Bee Gees. Oh, I love the Bee I love the Bee Gees. I got into a whole argument with my wife um, because there were four brothers Gibb, but only three in the Bee Gees. That's correct. Um, Andy and Gibb was never. Andy Gibb. And we got into, I, I mean, an argument you know, over dinner. And she's like, Andy Gibb. I'm like, Andy Gibb was not in the Bee Gees. She's like, yes, he was. I'm like, no, he was not. I've seen the behind the music a thousand times. And it's not until she prayed to Our Lady of Wikipedia did she, you know, come to understand the fallacy of her beliefs. Yeah, and completely. And and sadly, we lost him very, very young. And speaking of Pamela Ewing, he dated Victoria Principal. He was dating her when he died. Oh, I didn't know that. Look at that. Oh, I'm I'm the queen of trivial knowledge. Trust me. <laughs> I have to say, um, I love Tom Petty as well. I saw him right before he died. He oh. was touring um, in the summer that summer, mm-hmm. and he was. I think he passed away that October or so. But um, you know, he uh, he plays he played American Girl as his closing number, and I can't I can't hear that song and not think of Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if you remember that there was a scene in Silence of the Lambs where right before um, Buffalo Bill takes one of his victims, she's in a car listening to music. Oh and my she's God, tapping on the ruining that wheel. song for me. Oh, I'm I've sorry. Silence of the Lambs loved it. Mm. Um, but I don't remember. I'm, obviously, I'm going to have to watch it again. So. Oh, yeah. You did watch it. Um, watch it. Watch it and get sad. Uh, over, yeah, and then I will it. never be able to listen to that song again. So okay. I will say this. We're, we're, we're standing, hanging out in the parking lot a few hours before the show because, you know, that's what we do. And uh, we look at our tickets and realize that there's an opening act. And the opening act for Tom Petty was Joe Walsh. Uh-uh. And I lose my mind. I'm like, what are we still doing in this parking <laughs> lot? Like, I, I love, I'm a huge Eagles fan, but I love Joe Walsh too. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we sprinted, we got, we, we missed like three Joe Walsh songs no. while we were just like. Did he play all night long? 
Oh, he, he di- I didn't hear him play that. He did play You may have played it when we weren't um when we were still um having fun on the parking lot, but he okay. did play Rocky Mountain Way, Funk 49. Um I don't think he played any Eagle songs. I think he okay. he'd strictly James Gang okay. and and Joe Walsh. Uh, Life's okay. been good. Yeah. Um, oh, but, oh, God. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Wow. Um, all right. So third question. Um, obviously, you've got a number of books under your belt, but how do you feel when you're staring either at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen um, about to start writing something? What, what, what kind of emotions are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, really, Karen? <laughs> Like, you have no idea what, again, that imposter syndrome just swoops in and settles on my, you know, my, my chair next to me. It's like, what are you thinking? You don't know what you're doing. You're doing it all wrong. Um, you know, maybe it's because the way I was raised, I don't know, but I, I just, it's, you would think after so many books, I would have a level of confidence going in that I have some sort of expertise. Nope. It's like, Every time, and it's not even each book, but every time I sit down to write, it's like opening up a vein, you know, mm-hmm. with a with a dull-aged blade. <laughs> you know, it's painful. It really is. And it never gets easier. But it's like now I'm assuming you only have the triplets. You don't have any additional children after the triplets. Two uh two aging dogs. That's okay. Okay. So I guess it's like the mother who has, you know, given birth to triplets. It's like, I'm never doing that again. And then, and then when the wound heals and the babies are cute and they're sleeping through the night or they're potty trained, you're like, gosh, that was, that wasn't so bad. Maybe we should do it again because look at the end result. The end result is so worth it. And you look at your, your, bookshelf of these beautiful books with your name on the spine and you're like <sighs> but then you open up the dang computer and the blank screen is there and the cursor's blinking and you're like oh what am I doing so yeah, yeah. it's painful but it's- I tell you I mean I have to imagine it's it's probably better to have that point of view than being overly confident because if you're still you know you're still trying to prove something to yourself then I think that's better than kind of taking it for granted or even taking your readers for granted. I agree. As a matter of fact, I have, I can't remember where I read this, but I, I have an, a 92 year old woman, one of my main characters in, in my book, uh, the night the lights went out. She's one of my favorite characters ever. And she tells the, uh, the younger heroine as something like, um, those with an overabundance, um, God compensates those with an overabundance of confidence with, oh, great, I'm screwing it up, but whatever. But basically, um, oh, with, um, with, or curses them with uh, those with an overabundance of, of confidence with um, uh, just a small amount of talent. Um, and, you know, it, it, which is very true. I think those who are, and I guess because I was raised, you know, by my father, who ended up being very successful in life, who had really, really humble beginnings, you know, with no food to eat. Remember, mm-hmm. 1932, Macomb, Mississippi. Um, you know, he, he was always about be humble. You know, don't, you know, work hard, and you know, success will come to you. Don't expect it. 
Um, And sometimes when you work hard, you won't get the success. You need to work harder or just find something, something else that, that, that will bring you the success you were looking for. And, and I think that's, that sticks with me, you know? Um, I mean, I still, sometimes I look, I'm like, this is like, what, you know, what am I writing? What am I doing? And then, you know, I know better. I just keep going. And then when I go back to reread the chapter, I'm like, this is, this is okay. You know, this isn't bad. And, um, and it's sort of reassuring, you know, unless my dog sneaks into my office at night and cleans it up for me before I look at it. Um, but you know, maybe I'm not such a failure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, along those lines, it's a good segue into the next question, which is what, what lesson about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way? If Mm -hmm. there is one. Yeah, that once you make it to the top, you will not stay there. My career has been full of so many ups and downs. I like I'm 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 car sick from it. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's like life. You know, and and um, sometimes you have to take a detour. Like like right now, I'm taking um, just a, a like a brief hiatus. I mean, normally I write my my um, series books. And then I do sort of a more serious um, Southern fiction book. Um, But I'm kind of having to delay that because as we were talking a little bit before, um, you know, my parents care has, has landed on me. And as you know, that is, it's time consuming, it's heartbreaking, it's, it's everything. And, oh, and did I mention my daughter is getting married in October? (laughs) So, I've just got a lot going on in my life right now. And, 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 and that's okay. And, and that's the thing I want to tell, um, you know, just, just, if you get a no, don't, that's not your final answer. You know um, I mean, I was dropped by my second publisher and I thought my career was over. And then I, but I had written uh, a book, the color of light that my agent really believed in. She said, this is a great book. It'll find a, it'll find a good home. Just trust me. And it was hard for me to trust her, um, but she did. She placed it. And um, that's why I started with Penguin Random House, which really was the beginning of my career, even though I didn't start with them until my fifth book. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's like just, you know, surround yourself with people who love you and support you. The people who are naysayers, you don't need them in your life. Um, and it's easier for me to say now at this age than, you know, 20 years ago when I started or was that 30 years ago? I don't know, 20, 20 years ago. And um, yeah, and just, you know, don't, dis- discouragement and no, and the answer no are temporary. Yeah. yeah. Did, I mean, was there a time in your life where you were a little bit more concerned about sort of not staying on top? Um, were you more worried about it or stressed about it um, versus, versus right now? Because it seems like you've almost come to terms with, the fact that maybe nothing lasts forever um, in terms of kind of being at the top, but. Um, oh, absolutely. I think, oh, I think maybe within the last five years, you know, and it's not, I mean, my, my career has been pretty steady, um, you know, for the last, you know, since really with, with Penguin, I mean, I started so small with Penguin. I mean, when they, my first contract was like grocery money, you know? And so, but I love that. I love starting small and again, surprising myself. So it's been a nice and steady rise and I'm very, very fortunate. Um, But, you know, seeing 
really dear friends of mine with fabulous books, you know, we're all, it's all this. And um, I think also as you get older and you have some life challenges as, as you know, I'm going through and you are also facing um, you, you, everything is in perspective. You know, I look, I'm like, um, I've got a wonderful family, uh, you know, a wonderful husband, a sweet dog, two children who are doing well, we're all healthy. I'm still writing. I have a contract. I could have another contract soon um, if I can figure out what that book's going to be about. And I have ideas. I just, I'm okay with waiting. I don't have to be like, I just, I can't do that to myself mentally. Um, So, and I'm, and I think that comes with maturity too, just being on this world in this earth longer. You just learn how to put things in perspectives And, and COVID. I mean, I saw people die, you know, um, husband of a dear friend of mine. And it just, and she's a writer and, you know, she's not able to write now. And I, I get it. I'm like, why would you, you yeah. need to deal with this horrible loss in your life and figure out what you're going to do next. And if the writing isn't there, it's not there. Um, you know, you're talking, it almost sounded before, like you were giving advice to, you know, an aspiring author. So if, if, if you could pretend for a moment that there's an aspiring author listening to this, what would you want to tell that person? Um, what kind of advice would you give to borrow from Nike? Just do it. People, you know, say, Oh, I, you know, I, I need to get a degree in writing first, or I need to, you know, take some classes or, you know, I need to have more time or I need to, Oh my gosh. If you want to write the book or as Mrs. Anderson, my sixth grade teacher used to say, where there's a will, there's a way. Absolutely. You get up, you know, I, I know a mother of four, who just, who started, she's now a New York Times uh, bestselling author, who started when her kids were little and she would get up at four o'clock in the morning to write before she had to get up with the kids and then go do her full-time job. So where there's a will, there's a way. Do not picture anybody looking behind you, write the story that you want to write. And then the rest will fall into place. And if you could, uh, I call this the Brad Paisley letter to me question, because it's totally inspired by his song letter to me. But um, if you could write a letter to your younger self, mail it and have that, you know, younger, um, the younger Karen read it. What are some of the things that you would tell yourself from your adult, adult self perspective? What would, what would you tell your younger self? Buy beachfront property. <laughs> buy Apple and 81. Yeah, buy Apple. <laughs> um, Honestly, don't sweat the small stuff. When I think of all the wasted time of worrying about things that do not matter in the long run, oh my gosh, you know, like Susie got a better grade on that essay than I did. Oh my gosh, it's, you know, my, my life is over. It's not important. It's not important. What, what is important is your family um, you know, following your heart, if you want to be a writer, whatever it is in your life that you want to do, um, follow that. Don't, don't listen to the naysayers in your life or the naysayers in your own head. Um, you know, believe in yourself and get for God's sakes, don't sweat the small stuff. It's yeah, not worth it. My father has that book. Don't sweat the small stuff. And the, the, the subtitle is, and it's all small stuff. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I think there is some truth to that. Um, and I'm certainly guilty of, of overthinking just about every major and minor decision 
<laughs> Me too. Hey, I've been trying I to pack to for, for three weeks for a book tour, right? It's like, how many shoes do how many pairs of shoes? You know, and I have like 40 pairs of shoes lined up. And my husband's like, you're only going gone for 17 days. You don't need 40 pairs of shoes. Little does he know. Little does he know, right? Yeah. Well, I went to Florida last week. I I, I brought one pair of shoes and a pair of sneakers. Well, you're a guy and you weren't doing any like, see, even now, like right now, I'm actually wearing fluffy socks. You can't see them. But, you know, when I'm on tour, I'm like on a stage and people see the whole outfit has to be there. And then you have to wear a different outfit every day because people's social media, they post it and you want to don't want to look like you're wearing the same thing every day. Yeah, no, I, I understand all that. Um, still, I, I always bemoan whenever we go anywhere. The weight of my wife's suitcase is always, you know, 4X. No, no. Plus my makeup carry on. I mean, it's just out of control. Sure. But you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into it. Absolutely. So. Adds the things that we don't see um, right. yet appreciate uh, perhaps <laughs> subconsciously. Um, well, I know that the book is coming out as we record this. The book is coming out tomorrow. The shop on Royal Street will be available wherever books aren't sold. But Karen, if people wanted to learn more about you, uh, do you have websites, do you have social medias that people can look up? What, where, where would you advise people to go if they wanted to learn more about Karen White? Um, I would um, tell you to head to my website. First off, karen-white.com. Um, there you can find everything you ever wanted to know about me and my books. Uh, also, my social media handles are on the homepage. Um, I'm really active on um, Instagram, and that would be at Karen White Wright, W-R-I-T-E. There you go. Well, now, now you heard it from, from Karen. Follow her at all those places. Check out the website. And of course, check out uh, the Shop on Royal Street. First book in a spinoff series set in New Orleans. Karen, thank you so much for this fun conversation. Thank you. It's been a blast.